Anyhow, it's good to see all of you here. Um, my name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors. And uh, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series through the New Testament book of First Peter. And we've given our uh, sermon series the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. Because right from the get-go, in chapter 1, verse 1 of this New Testament letter, Peter addresses his recipients as elect exiles. Now, what does that mean, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you did. Um, an elect exile is, is someone who's been chosen by God, but rejected by the world. Chosen by God, but rejected by the world. And Peter is writing to first century Christians living in Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey, who are beginning to undergo significant persecution because of their faith in Jesus. They were in their homeland, and yet they didn't fit in. They were, they were foreigners in their world, exiles in their homeland because of their faith in Jesus. They were in the minority. They were on the fringes of their culture. They were looked down upon with disdain and suspicion because they did not participate in the worship of the Roman emperor like everybody else. And Peter's writing to them to let them know how to live in a world that really isn't their true home, how to live faithfully in a foreign world, hence the subtitle. Faithful living in a foreign world. Now, why is it important uh, for us as 21st century followers of Jesus to listen to what Peter has to say to this, these first century believers? Well, as our culture becomes more and more secular, more and more post-Christian, to faithfully follow Jesus and to, to really believe what's in the Bible is to become more and more like an endangered species. Religious surveys have shown us that in the last decade, people who self-identify as Christian in our nation has decreased 16%. The fastest growing response on religious affiliation surveys is the nuns, not N-U-N, nun. There's not some kind of Roman Catholic resurgence going on. No, it's N-O-N-E, nun. So when these religious um, affiliation surveys come out, there's lots of options, there's Muslim, Catholic, Buddhist, Hindu. Um, but there's, then there's a, a box near the, the bottom that, that says this, N-O-N-E, none. The fastest growing response on religious affiliation surveys is that little box. I might be spiritual, but I'm not religious. Although the, the impact of secularism is felt more profoundly on the coast of our nation, even here in the deep-fried southern city of Nashville, to practice any kind of religion is becoming less and less common, let alone authentic Jesus-following, Bible-believing Christians. So in re recent decades, Christians, Christians in America have gone from majority to the minority, from the, the center of culture-making to, to the fringes, from being respected to being disrespected. And our biblical ethics are increasingly viewed as weird and odd, yes, but even more than that, quite possibly dangerous and damaging to society. And this is why studying 1 Peter is very important to us. It's going to help us avoid two main temptations that believers in Jesus' faith face, both individually and corporately, when practicing our faith begins to cut across the grain of our culture. And, and it is. It is. The first temptation is what I like to call chameleon Christianity. Chameleon Christianity. Now, 
there's a, a picture of one here. What does a chameleon do when, when it's faced with a hostile environment? What does it do? What's its defense mechanism? It changes color to do what? To blend in so it doesn't stand out. Now, this is the well-worn path of Christian compromise. In order to avoid any discomfort, many churches and individual Jesus followers throughout history, when, when their faith begins to cut across the grain of culture, what they simply do is, is they go with the flow. They blend in. They adopt the cultural norms and mores of the world around them. We saw this happen in many of the mainline denominations in our country in the mid-20th century. The technical theological name for this is syncretism. You know, say that out loud with me. Syncretism, so where you get the, the name sync, you know, to, to sync up with. Um, when the Bible says one thing and our culture says another, what does syncretism do? Syncretism jettisons the teaching of Scripture or at least reinterprets them and goes with the common practices of culture, syncs with culture. So that, that's one danger, that's one temptation, that's one well-worn path of Christian compromise when it comes to living in a foreign world is syncretism. Just blend in, don't stand out, don't make waves. If we just stand still, nobody will notice. But there's another main temptation. It's what I like to call turtle Christianity, since we're using reptiles, okay? Turtle Christianity. What does a turtle do in a hostile environment? It, it withdraws, it goes into the, the self-protective shell that it, it carries with it. It retreats to the safe confines of its own shell. And this is the well-worn path of Christian retreat into subcultures that have no meaningful contact with the outside world. In its extreme form, it's the Amish. And it's not so extreme form, it's the fundamentalistic Baptist circles that I grew up in a church culture that spawned out of the pendulum swing reaction to the syncretism of the mainline denominations in the mid-20th century. The technical theological name for this type of compromise is, say this out loud with me, as soon as it comes up on the screen, there it is, say it out loud with me, separatism, separatism. So syncretism blends in, separatism retreats or withdraws. When the Bible says one thing, but the culture says another, separatism holds on to the Bible, true, but runs the other direction with it and hides within the perceived safety of Christian bubbles. Separatism circles the wagons in a defensive posture and throws a brick outside the wagon circle every once in a while and calls it evangelism. But both syncretism and separatism are motivated by what? What's the emotion behind both syncretism and separatism? Fear. Fear, good. That's why a chameleon blends in. That's why a turtle withdraws to its shell. Fear. But throughout his letter, Peter is attempting to inoculate his original audience and also us as his 21st century readers, inoculate us from living in fear. And to do this, he begins his letter with a beautiful reminder of the gospel, the good news of what we've been given in Jesus Christ. He reminds us that we have, we have new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are sealed by God's power. There's a lot in that verse, or those two verses, in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
But what Peter's doing with them is he's reminding us of the hope that we have. This world isn't our home. We have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fail. And it's, we're guarded, we're being kept, we're being kept safe for it. doesn't mean life will go well, but it means our future is certain and it's secure. We have salvation, we have eternal life, and nothing can change that. There's no reason to be afraid. And then in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says there's a key transition in Peter's um, text of his letter. He says, therefore, because of what you have, because of the gospel, because of the eternal life you've been given in Jesus, therefore, do this. And he starts giving commands. And that's the pattern we see throughout the New Testament. You know, we're, we're not commanded to obey so that God loves us. nor we're reminded God loves you, therefore obey. You get that flipped and you're just going to be in, in empty religion. Every, most every religion in the world is working hard to get to God so that he'll accept you. Christianity is much, much different. It says, God loves you. How do we know? Jesus. Eternal life is a free gift by grace through faith in Jesus. And based on that, obey. The motivation is much different. So, Peter proceeds based on the gospel to give four commands. We looked at two last week in part one of faithful living, how to live faithfully in a foreign world. We looked at his first two commands. This week we're going to look at his next two commands. But let's review quickly what we covered last week. The first command that Peter gave us was this. Place your hope fully in your coming glorification. Glorification as the aspect of our salvation that's going to come in the future when we receive resurrected bodies that match Jesus' resurrected body. You know, a surefire way to succumb to fear in this world is to put your hope fully in something in this world. If you want to live an anxiety-filled life, simply put your hope in something that isn't secure, like other people's opinions of you. And since both syncretism and separatism are motivated by fear, Peter starts out by exhorting us to put our hope fully in the resurrected bodies that we're going to receive when Jesus returns. Now, Peter doesn't quite put it in that language. He says this, put your hope fully in the grace to be given us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is when he comes back and what's the grace that's going to be given to us at that point? The third aspect of our salvation, our glorification, when we're saved from the presence of sin and resurrected bodies. When we're saved from death and pain and mourning and sorrow forevermore. Put your hope in that. We aren't to put our hope in earthly vocations or finances or relationships or achievements. Why? Misplaced hope always leads to fear, and fear will lead you into what? Syncretism or separatism as an individual or as a corporate body of believers, both of which are unfaithful ways of living in a foreign world. Only if we put our hope fully in our eternal future with Jesus will we become, got a little tongue tied there, will we become faithful in our following of Jesus? Will we become a faithful contrast community for the common good? A contrast community that's distinct from the culture around us, avoiding syncretism, while at the same time maintaining a loving and creative engagement with our culture, bringing blessing and renewal and healing, avoiding separatism. 
Well, the second imperative that we looked at last week is this. While you wait, say it out loud with me, while you wait, be an accurate reflection of God's character. Peter exhorts us in chapter 1, verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. He comes right out of the gate and and basically says, don't be syncretistic. Be holy, be separate, be different, live differently, don't blend in, don't go with the flow, don't compromise, don't be a chameleon Christian. No, instead, be holy, be set apart, be distinct in your attitudes and actions. Be holy as God is holy, he quotes out of Leviticus there. Be an accurate reflection of of God's character as his representatives on earth. So those around you go, oh, aha, that's what God must look like. They'll look at how you treat your neighbors and your coworkers and your family and your friends, and they'll go, aha, God must be gracious and loving and kind and forgiving, full of goodness, generous, self-sacrificing. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be a reflection of what God is like. Well, today we're going to look at two more commands that Peter gives us on how to live faithfully as Jesus' followers in a foreign world. So let's pick our text back up where we left off last week. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't, um, use the fake copy on your phone or follow along with the words on the screen behind me. We're going to pick up in verse 22. If you're able, would you please stand me? Stand, stand with me. As, yeah, I hope you can stand me today. Um, <laughs> please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, as we look into your word today, open our hearts to your spirit. Because we know that it's only the combination of your spirit with your word among your people that brings true and lasting change. And so we invite you to do just that today. Amen. You may be seated. Right at the beginning of our passage in verse 22, Peter gives us a third command. I don't know if you caught it, but I'm going to put the words back up here on the screen so that you do catch it. This is the third command on how to live faithfully in a foreign world. Let's read this out loud together. Form genuine, loving community with each other. Let's go ahead and put the verse up before that it comes from. So back up one slide for me. There it is. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Peter says, form genuine loving community with each other. Peter sometimes gets a bad rap for some, some of the blockheaded things he says and does throughout the Gospels. Um, but the more I study his epistles, I am... I'm more and more convinced that he actually was listening pretty well to what Jesus said when he was walking with him on earth. He deeply internalized the messages that he was hearing. 
You know, some of the last words of Jesus are recorded for us in John chapter 13. This is at the Last Supper with his disciples. And last words are important words. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this. A new commandment I give you. Peter was there in the room listening. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. How will a watching world, you know, they may no longer be listening to our message, but they're still watching our actions. How will a watching world know that we are followers of Jesus? Will it be by our firm stance on the things we oppose? Well, that's typically how they identify us, unfortunately. Will it be by our squeaky clean doctrinal statements? No. What is it? Not rhetorical. What is it? By our love for each other. That doesn't, don't hear me wrong. It's not, I'm not saying that right doctrine doesn't matter. But holding on to right doctrine without displaying and showing genuine charity and love for each other isn't being faithful to that right doctrine. So if someone who claims the name of Christ is being uncharitable, unloving, cutting in their words, they're not being faithful to the truth. Because Jesus says, how will all people know that you're my disciple? By your love. That's the primary way that we're to stand out from the world around us by our our sincere, brotherly, and earnest love for each other. But of the four commands that Peter gives on how to live faithfully as foreigners, this one about forming loving community is by far the most difficult for us. Why do I say that? Well, because we happen to live in perhaps the most individualistic culture the world has ever known. In comparison to Eastern cultures, Western culture is massively individualistic. And America is even more so because it was founded by people who purposely left their families and communities in Europe, people who drafted the Declaration of Independence, for crying out loud. Uh, People that, I'm not saying that's wrong, it's good, but people who who do that, people who came here, oftentimes were um, entrepreneurs, they were risk takers, they were, they were independent, they are autonomous, and people who still immigrate to this country share those, those same kind of characteristics. Individualism is in our DNA. And one might push back on this and say, yeah, we, we might be individualistic, but at least we're more interconnected now than any other time in history. Look, we have the internet. We have social media. Yes, but interconnectedness is not the same as loving community. It's only a cheap substitute. In a recent national survey of American adults, 36% of respondents reported serious loneliness, feeling lonely either frequently or almost all the time or all the time. 36%. This included 61% of people ages 18 through 25. 61% people ages 18 to 25 who also happen to be the most active social media users. It's no wonder that we are experiencing an epidemic of anxiety and depression. 
Giving and getting likes on social media is not the same as getting and receiving genuine love. Interconnectedness is not the same thing as loving community, only a cheap substitute for it. Well, what is genuine loving community? Well, fortunately, Peter fleshes that out for us here by highlighting three positive attributes of what he's talking about, as well as five negative descriptions of the opposite of genuine loving community. Well, let's look at the three positive attributes first. I want you to notice three words that, that uh, are surrounding this command to love each other in verse 22. Say them out loud with me. What are they? Sincere, brotherly, and earnestly. The loving community that Peter exhorts us to form with each other must first be sincere. What does that mean? Well, it means it must be genuine, not fake. It has to be authentic. It must truly and honestly put other people first, caring more about their needs than your own doing what's best for them with no strings attached, no duplicity, no mixed motives, no fine print, no bartering, no, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. No, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's not sincere. Secondly, this loving community that we are to form must be brotherly. Why does Peter use this word? Well, it indicates that he intends for our love for each other to be a familial love. Familial love is stubborn. It's stubbornly loyal, isn't it? It's a type of love that says, I've got your back no matter what. You know, you might be fighting with your brother and sister, but then somebody like says something negative about them. Boy, you're together like that. You don't mess with my family because we're kin, you know? Fam- familial, lo- familial love is stubbornly loyal. I'm pretty sure that... Um, Levi has this type of love for me because several times over the past year, he, he come up, comes up to me and says, Mark, I've got your back no matter what. Familial love doesn't mean that you always like the people in your family, but you'll always love them because they're kin. Now, I'm pretty sure Levi likes me as well as loves me, but you can ask him for clarification on that. Thirdly, so... so This type of love must be sincere, must be brotherly. Thirdly, it must be displayed with earnest. must be displayed earnestly. Biblical love has a faithful tenacity behind it. It never stops. It never gives up. It never quits. It's persevering love. It's like the love that my daughter Emma has for our pet rabbit, Gigi, a rabbit who has one of the sourest personalities that you could ever have in a pet. I mean, she looks like this little cute furball, but you get close and she starts growling at you. I mean, this little bunny growls. You don't, don't believe us? Ask the guests. They've bunny sit for us. And this bunny has punched Matthew Guest. Um, yes, you've heard the, the, the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Well, Gigi has not learned that. Um, but Emma's love is undaunted. It is earnest for this little fluff ball. She will pick it up even though it's growling at her and just pet it, you know. And uh, anyhow, that's how to love earnestly like Emma loves our grumpy rabbit. Biblical loving community is characterized by sincere, brotherly, earnest love. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter flips the coin and he begins giving us five negative attributes which define the opposite of biblical loving community. Let's read this verse out loud together and count how many there are here. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy 
and all slander. The first thing that we need to get rid of in order to form genuine loving community is what? Malice. Malice. Well, what's malice? Malice is hurting someone to come out ahead. It's mean-spirited. It's vindictive. It says, I don't like you. I don't want good for you. I, I, in fact, I want punishment. I want damage. I want danger for you. And, and with my deeds and with my words, I'm going to make life difficult for you. Twitter users. Any Twitter users among us? How many of you used Twitter once? Okay, a few of you. Okay, true or false? Our culture has a bit of a malice problem. True, good. How do you know if you have malice towards someone? Well, if something bad happens to them, you get excited. Oh, good, they got fired. They deserved it. They were horrible to work with. That's malice. The second thing we need to discard to form genuine loving community is deceit. This is a skewing of facts or a lining of details in such a way as to paint someone in the worst possible light. It's misleading someone for your own advantage. It's shading the truth to come out ahead. It's twisting words to advance your own agenda. Does this happen a lot in our culture? Oh, yes. If you ever watch something that we, we sometimes call news, um, you've probably seen this. Different sides twisting things, saying things in different ways. Headlines can be very, very misleading. That's deceit. The third thing that characterizes the opposite of genuine loving community is hypocrisy. It's acting loving only when it gives you an edge, which is nothing more than manipulation and transactional selfishness. Hypocrisy is posing. It's faking. It's using filters to make yourself and your life look a lot better than it really is. Any Instagram users out here? Okay, there's more Instagram than, than Twitter users. That's good. True or false? False. Our culture has a hypocrisy problem. True. The fourth thing that we need to get rid of to form genuine loving community is what? Envy. Envy. Envy is resentment at someone else's success or good fortune. It stems from comparisons and resents people who seem to have a better life in some form or fashion. How many Facebook users do we have out here? Okay. Multiple choice on this one. After scrolling through your news feed, do you A, feel better about yourself, or B, wish that you were on a vacation to Hawaii while looking that good in a swimsuit beside your amazing new car while celebrating the fact that your kid is an honor student? Man, they have a six-pack, and I have an igloo cooler. My kid can't even spell honor. That, that, that's envy, Okay. The fifth thing that we need to go, um, that needs to go in order for us to form genuine biblical community is slander. Slander is tearing down someone's character, talking about them behind their back, making them look worse so that you look better. It's perpetuating juicy gossip and wild rumors. It's magnifying someone's faults, reducing them to the sum total of their failures. Internet users. Does our culture have a slander problem? Yes or no? Yes. Do you see now why I said that this command to form genuine loving community is going to be difficult for us to obey? 
There are powerful forces at work in our culture called news feeds and social media that pull us in the opposite direction of genuine, loving community. Every single minute of every single day, and we carry it with us in our pocket. Which is why Peter starts talking about an even more powerful force in this passage. Let's back up to verse 23 where Peter is giving his reasoning for why we are to form genuine, loving community, which will set us up for his fourth command in chapter 2 of verse 2. But please back up to verse 23. What comes before is the command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Any clues as to what this other powerful force might be? For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But what? The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The imperishable, living, and abiding word of God, the good news, the gospel can be a more powerful force and influence in our lives than any other force, any other news outlet or social media feed, but only if we tap into it, which is why Peter gives us a command in chapter 2, verse 2, his fourth command on how to live faithfully in a foreign world. Let's read this together. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And right here is the fourth command that Peter gives on how to live faithfully in a foreign world. Consistently long for and feed on God's word. Say that out loud with me. Consistently long for and feed on God's word. Peter says long for crave for pure, like a newborn infant, long for pure spiritual milk. He has in reference there God's word, the gospel that's found in God's word. How does a newborn baby crave nourishment from its mother? If you've ever taken care of a baby, you know. And that baby lets you know. <laughs> a newborn baby craves nourishment obsessively, voraciously, frequently, insistently, desperately, like it's going to die if it doesn't get fed now. Is the word of God your lifeline like that? If not, it needs to be. We need a steady diet of God's word if we're going to keep from being pulled in the opposite direction of loving community with each other. Because if your diet is unhealthy, you will be too. Garbage in equals what? Garbage out. If you were to eat only at McDonald's from now until the end of the year, every single meal, what's your health going to be like? <laughs> Probably not that great. If you're pounding Big Macs for lunch every day, there's going to be some pounds, <laughs> shall we say. You're probably going to end up in the ER before too long. A healthy diet is essential to a healthy life. And what's true physically is also true spiritually. If we have a steady, regular diet 
intake of things like news net, network news and social media, it's going to produce in us what? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. But if we have a steady, regular, nourishing intake of God's word, it will produce in us the fruit of the Spirit who is at work in our hearts through the word of God. And we'll begin to show things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We'll begin, in other words, we'll begin to look more like Jesus and less like our culture. And obeying this fourth command to consistently long for and feed on God's word is the only way that we hope, have hope of obeying Peter's other three commands that precede it. It's the only way to grow up in our salvation, as Peter puts it here in this verse. Now, what aspect of our salvation is Peter talking about here when he says, grow up in your salvation? I've highlighted it for you. What is it? Our sanctification. Remember last week we talked about our three aspects of salvation. What was in the past? Salvation from sin's penalty. Justification. Where when you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is exchanged for Christ's righteousness and you're justified. You're made right in God's sight. That's our justification. But when Peter says, grow up in your salvation, he's talking about our sanctification. Our salvation from sin's power. The progressive growth in our life where, this, where God takes his chisel through his word and his spirit and he begins to shape us and mold us, knocking off the rough edges of our heart so that we look more and more like his son Jesus. It's not as though we somehow get more of the Holy Spirit as we become more sanctified, but the Holy Spirit does get more of us as we feed on the imperishable, living, and active Word of God. This brings me to a question as we wrap things up this morning. And it's a convicting question. It convicted me when I wrote it and asked it of myself. Do you spend more time feeding on news and social media or on God's Word? Do you spend more time feeding on news and social media or on God's Word? We're always being discipled by something. Are you being discipled by the gospel, the imperishable, living, and abiding word of God? Or are you more being discipled by our culture through your news and social media feeds? This passage was convicting for me uh, because oftentimes the first thing that I reach for in the morning is my phone that's on my nightstand charging overnight. And I pick it up and guess what it typically sucks me into? The news feed, oh, I, what happened on Facebook or Instagram? It sucks me in. And it disciples me. My friends, the living, imperishable, and active Word of God is so much better. I want to challenge you this morning. If you don't have a plan for regular intake of God's Word, would you start one? And you might say, okay, Mark, I'd like to. I get it. Garbage in equals garbage out. I, I need to have my nose more in, in His Word, in the Bible. I need to be more influenced by that than the voices of culture. But I don't know how. Um, I'd encourage you to download um, an app on your phone. Um, it's the Bible app, um, if you don't already have it. 
I don't know if you noticed, but you can find a lot more on this app than just the text of Scripture in every single translation that is ever known to man, <laughs> or at least in English. Um, but um, on this Bible app, there are reading plans, there's devotional plans. Um, I just searched for one on starting to read the Bible, and it was one called 60 to Start, 60 Days to Start You on a Habit of Getting Your Nose in God's Word Before Anything Else. You can just search for that on, on your, your Bible app, and you'll find that. Takes you through a short devotional, gives you a passage out of the gospel, a couple passages out of the gospels, a couple pas- passages out of the epistles. Um, day three of this plan is actually First Peter chapter one, two, and three. So there you go. You, you you will review where we've been and actually get ahead of where we're going if you start this week. But if you don't have a plan, a regular intentional plan for getting your nose into God's word, I'd encourage you to start. And this is just one way you can do it. It's not the only way, but it is one way that you can do it. The Word of God, the Gospel, is what changes us from the inside out with the, combined with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's what inoculates us from fear. It keeps us from, from fearing, okay, what, what, what might other people think if I stand out and if I'm different? So it protects us from syncretism. It, it, it protects us also from the fear of the other, of, boy, you know, if I, if I associate with them, maybe they'll rub off on me, and so I just need to go over here in my, my little Christian bubble and, and stay nice and secure. No, we have nothing to fear. We have the truth. And so we can winsomely live among people that are looking for love in all the wrong places seeking to point them to the source of true and abiding love in Jesus Christ, avoiding separatism. This is why we need this book, to hear from the Apostle Peter, to be reminded of the gospel, to be unleashed from our fears, and engage, engage winsomely with the gospel each and every day as accurate representations of the God that we serve, as a living proof of a loving God wherever we go. Would you pray with me as the band comes back up? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, for the encouragement that we find in it, for the renewal that comes from it, There are so many things that distract us. This world is a broken place. And uh, it is so easy to get discouraged when we see racially motivated shootings, when we see massacre of school kids, when we see a, um, a, a leader who is invading another country and bringing just chaos and destruction and death and um, when armies are warring against each other. There's just so, so much brokenness, God. And it's so easy to get caught up in it. and um, So easy to get distracted. Not that we stick our heads in the sand and we're not aware of what's going on around us, God, but we need to be grounded in your word. We need to feed on the fact that um, we're in the middle of a greater story. 
where we should expect brokenness right now, but where we, as we, we read the pages of your word, it, will, it increases our longing for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see the beauty of Jesus and we, as we read through the pages of the Bible and we see that he has promised to come again and make all things new. So Father, keep our noses in, in your book so that we're reminded of the truth, so we're galvanized against fear amidst all the brokenness around us, knowing that we have confidence in eternal life and knowing that we're left here as your emissaries, as your ambassadors, as your representatives to extend that hope to people who, are, who don't have that hope each and every day. So use us, we pray. Hence, in Christ's name, we pray, amen.